Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quickfire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing charity rebrands. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we've got a story about a football team's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Not that football team. It's a whole lot more positive, we promise. But first, the other week, Rebecca and I went to the pub after work. A perfectly normal thing to have done once upon a time and now quite an exciting occurrence for us both. Right. And while you were in the loo, I was faffing around on my phone, as you do. And I I just tuned in to the conversation at the next table over. And I forget how the conversation got started, but there was this this gentleman who I would say was maybe 20 to 25 years older than us uh, with a group of friends. And he was he was just grousing about how he doesn't like change. Um, And this very suddenly pivoted to why do they keep changing the names of sweets, eh? Opal fruits. What's wrong with opal fruits? Um, And then he said, and Snickers. Why did they have to change that? I'd eat a marathon bar. I wouldn't eat a Snickers because you know what? That sounds like knickers. Okay. (laughs) It was just a very specific issue to have, you know, sir. But if that's that's fine you do you uh i guess um yeah it's, i I've, I've got questions or you know but okay fine it's fine. a very very long time to avoid a chocolate bar because i have to say you know marathon became snickers before i was born so that's a long time to go off your your favorite chocolate bar i suppose but i guess what that does show is that rebrands are not always successful The Royal National Institute for Deaf People, for example, went back to being RNID in 2021 after 10 years of trying to be action on hearing loss and just finding they could not make that name stick. Right. They were still all their emails 10 years later underneath were saying, RNID, uh, action on hearing loss, used to be RNID. And they just gave up and went back to it. Um, When I was at FE Week, which covers colleges and apprenticeships back in 2013, Lewisham College merged with Southwark College and they rebranded the newly formed college as Le Soco. That sounds like something you drink in the student union bar at 10 to midnight. Right, right. Or like yeah. a dance or something. I don't know if they were going for like FOMO. Like if, right. if they were going like, yeah. kids like portmanteaus, let's do a portmanteau. I'm not sure if that's what that was, what, if that's how that happened. Um, but yeah, just as a name, it meant absolutely nothing. Um, and I was actually living near Lewisham at the time and there was a big poster for Lesoko at the station in Lewisham. And I used to try and get people to guess what the hell this poster was advertising. It just had like four young people grinning at the camera, looking ready to go to college. So lots of people were like, is it an advert for the backpacks? Is that... Is, is that what's going on? Um, and every time we wrote about this college, we had to explain that the merger had happened just so people would know what the hell we were talking about. Um, and it later emerged that the college, I think this was, an FE, this was one of my colleague's FOI requests, it later emerged the college had spent £290,000 on that rebrand. Oof. And like that, that is a state-funded institution. That is, that is a, a, an FE college. Um, and to give some context, another college rebranded around about that time for under £20,000. So like... It was a lot of money to get Le Soco in return. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, in the end, following a lot of mockery from FE Week, it has to be said, uh, the college concluded that the name was, quote, ambiguous and is not recognisable as a college and that students said they, quote, did not identify with Le Soco, which I feel like you could have asked the students first. Um, but yeah, so two years after spending £290,000 on that rebrand, they switched back to the much more sensible Lewisham Southwark College. Two hundred and ninety grand, certainly a lot to spend on something like that. But 
Having said that, there are some rebrands that done well can be hyper effective. That is true. I mean, so I, I know there's one that we were going to talk about, but it occurs to me there's another one that we haven't even thought to mention in this podcast, which is uh, us, uh, Third Sector, obviously recently rebranded under a lot of direction from you um, a couple of years ago. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, so in the interview that we've done, um, that's going to be the main bit of this podcast, there was a conversation about bringing everybody along uh, in the team with you. And I think that was something that, it probably took a little while for you guys to 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 do just because I think sort of some of the editorial staff were thinking this doesn't really have anything to do with us. Um, so actually kind of it was you and Andy Hillier, who was the editor at the time, doing a lot of work to kind of engage with us and say, no, no, you have a say in this. This is part of, you know, part of your work. Um, and I think really kind of, yeah, making sure that we felt like we had this ownership of what turned out to be a very beautiful paper product the magazine looks gorgeous now and does it really different and we've had so much positive feedback on it and i think there is a real pride but i think that took a that took a little while to get us on board perhaps yeah and feedback from the readers as well i mean we spent a lot of time talking to the people who are our audience and showing them ideas and you know a lot of the time they said no we don't like that and so it was was then back to the drawing board but um hopefully people do enjoy it now <laughs> uh, you can always you can always email me if you don't yeah, please do <laughs> let us know um but yeah so what other successful rebrands were you thinking of well i personally believe that a rebrand which should go down in history is ed miliband's recovery from bacon sandwich gate um famously ed miliband then labor leader uh in 2014 was photographed may 2014 trying and failing to eat a bacon sandwich everybody has seen this photograph. Um, he was just about to go into the local elections and the picture became a viral meme about how he was weird and awkward and an error-prone person. And it was widely used to suggest that he would just not make a good prime minister. Now, Miliband, as leader of the Labour Party, was not a very confident leader. And there were a whole string of gaffes after that bacon sandwich, such as, you know, telling Jeremy Paxman, hell yes, I'm tough enough. Uh, when Paxman asked him, I think it was if, you know, if he was, you know, capable of being the prime minister. And uh, he did also unveil his election policies on a massive tombstone in his back garden, which was uh, later dubbed the Edstone. But I think if you asked an average person to sort of point to the source of Ed Miliband's undoing as the leader of Labour, uh, I expect it would be that bacon sandwich. A year after the photo was first taken and the day before the 2015 general election, The Sun featured the picture on its front page with the headline, Save Our Bacon. So... <laughs> It's not that the sandwich lost Miliband that election, but he does personally admit in interviews that it didn't really help. And it is one of his great regrets. But what I love about what Miliband did is that after he resigned the Labour leadership and he sort of took a step back from that political spotlight, he did truly lean into the humour and the ridiculousness of Sandwichgate. In 2017, he appeared on the comedy show The Last Leg, and he did a styled photo shoot in which he posed with a bacon sandwich, but this time wearing a leather jacket, aviators, and kind of leaning over a motorbike. Right, so I had completely missed this until you showed it to me yesterday. And uh, yeah, like, he looks really cool. Like, it's smart. It's a funny reclaiming of this image of him with a bacon sandwich. But, like, actually, my immediate response was, why does he look like Shah Rukh Khan? So, like, Shah Rukh Khan is this massive Bollywood leading man heartthrob. And I think it's the aviators and the sort of sticking up straight quiff they've both got going on. But, like, 
the fact that he looks like Shere Khan is like melting my brain a little bit, like sort of trying to jam two things together <laughs> that don't make any sense next to each other. Um, but yeah, I have to say, I thought the bacon sandwich in the original looked better than the bacon sandwich in the uh, in the um, photo shoot. But then I'm a vegetarian, so what do I know? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like it is, it is incredibly funny and clever. Um, and yeah. I think his total willingness to laugh at himself was really key. And 2017, that year, was totally transformative for Ed Miliband in in more ways than that photo shoot. In the same year, he launched his brilliant political podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful, with Jeff Lloyd, which he says allowed him to be kind of more relaxed and to show he had a personality. He went on Radio 2 and he did death metal screaming when he hosted the Jeremy Vine show. Um, And then when George Osborne got uh, announced as the the, um, editor of the Evening Standard in the same year. He went onto Twitter and he tweeted, Breaking, I shall shortly be announced as the editor of Heat magazine. Um, <laughs> and it just, he totally relaxed and became this very, very funny um, person. And he is still and remains a really compelling politician as well. So now he's not only back in the shadow cabinet um, as the shadow secretary of state for business, energy and industrial strategy, but I don't know about you. I never go a month without seeing someone on my Twitter feed saying, dreaming of the timeline where we all opted for chaos with Ed Miliband. Yeah. Yeah. No, that comes up a lot. And it's not, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. Yeah. They're not wrong. (laughs) Honestly, I could do a whole podcast just talking about him, but that is not why we're here, raining it back. Why we're just here keeping is keeping the Millie fandom under control <laughs> just a little bit. Never. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but in recent weeks, we have noticed a number of charities getting in touch to talk about their rebrands. So we thought we would bring a couple onto the show to find out more. We're joined by Julia Mazarodze, Head of Global Brand and Communications at Hope and Homes for Children, and Carol Flint, Head of Brand at the walking charity Ramblers. Thank you very much for joining us both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Nice to see you. So both your charities are in the process of going through rebrands. Um, Carol, I wanted if I could start with you first. What prompted Ramblers to decide we need we need a bit of a shake up, we need to freshen up our brand? So um, we're really well known for the walking groups that we organise but not necessarily all the other important work that we do, um, so which is campaigning, advocacy, legal, and even like physical path maintenance work. And we just didn't have a single compelling idea that held all of that together. So there were lots of different versions of the truth of the Ramblers. Also, we had like a really dated, old, very dusty, um, very two-dimensional logo, um, no kind of wider brand world. Um, and it just didn't really fit for the kind of current um, digital age, really. That makes sense. And, and Julia, what about you guys? Uh, I suppose in a word, what prompted us to go for a rebrand was the old brand. Um, (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Seriously, though, um, I think it's probably a combination of a few things. Um, The world has just changed so massively with the pandemic, social movements like Black Lives Matter, climate climate crisis fears. Um, There's just so much noise out there. Um, and although we had like a really great year during 2020, we had loads of supporters kind of rallying to our cause. I think sort of giving fatigue set in a bit around the second year of the pandemic. And people's hor- you could feel people's horizons were narrowing. You started to see more support for organisations that were closer to home, like food banks, hospices, and like even viewing healthcare as a charity. And that was kind of underscored by the government's uh, reduction in the um, overseas development budget. So 
from the external perspective, that's really hard for international NGOs, especially small ones. So it's like reduction in giving and statutory funding, more noise are all around and a real shift in public focus. So um, with limited resources, I guess, as a small organisation, we just we needed our brand to be working harder to gain cut through. And so that was the external thing. And then internally, I'd say there were quite a few markers that the time was right. So we'd redeveloped our strategy in response to that environment. So there was opportunity there internally for a fresh start to accompany some fresh thinking. And, you know, the old brand had been with us for a number of years, but there was a bit of internal fatigue around it, I would say. Um, you know, once you embed brands, they can start wandering from their origins for all, kind, for all kinds of reasons, like people move on. There might be poor management or low investment. That's really common. So um, I guess when I started at Hope and Homes for Children just over a year ago, I just spoke to loads of colleagues who felt they didn't quite have the tools for the job. Um, you know, whether that was the words or the consistent messages, the brand story or the look and feel um, to communicate our message. Well. So they just weren't really using it. Um, and that led to loads of work all over the place, everybody beavering away, reinventing the wheel. So I guess the desire was there internally, which which really helped. We were pushing at an open door. So reinventing the wheel, when it comes down to that, you both come to a place within your organisations where you've decided that you need to be refreshing and modernising the image and the feel of the charity. Where did you begin in terms of the practical process of that reinvention? Um, Carol, how about you? So we started with focus groups. We did those with, we're a membership um, organisation. So we started um, talking to members and also within that to our very core volunteers, many of which um, have been with the charity for a long, long, long time. And then we spoke to non-members. We did the focus groups across North and South England and Scotland and Wales because we have a devolved um, structure as well to make sure that we were finding um, a point of truth that would work for everyone. Obviously looked at different demographics. So the Ramblers does have quite an old, um, demographic it's core membership but the opportunity is huge we're 100,000 members but there's 20 plus million people who regularly walk for leisure so it was important that we kind of looked outside of that so we went you know down to the kind of feeder generation so the 40s and 50s but also even younger to understand kind of the real stretch um, and we used that process to um, went through a through few kind of stages gathering insights and then testing out positioning um, territories um, but really importantly the kind of Yes, reinventing the wheel, but making sure it still was the wheel. It wasn't about creating a new Ramblers. It was about finding kind of where is the truth at the heart of the Ramblers that's going to be that kind of compelling idea that brings in a wider supporter base. And we use that insight then to create, um, you know, a paper-based brand framework. So very kind of uh, literal box kind of filling exercise um, and then took that to a design agency to turn that into the... Um, the brand idea, which for us is opening the way, um, and then the visual identity that brings that to life and the tone of voice, etc. Fantastic. And um, what about Hope and Homes for Children, Julia? Well, um, I guess we're quite a different organisation to the Ramblers. <laughs> um, we, even though I guess, even though I said desire was there internally, people are kind of at different points along their journey in in the organisation as they are in most organisations, depending on loads of factors. So actually, the first thing we did, quite similar to Ramblers, even though we're quite different, um, was investigate what audience insight we had within the organisation. So what evidence we had about how people connected to us and engaged with us. And honestly, it was patchy. 
Um, in fact, there was even a bit of work to do up front to kind of bring everyone to the same place on who our audiences actually are. So really, it was like starting from a brownfield site. Um, so we started by working with senior stakeholders to agree who our primary audiences were, and that was crucial. But from that, um, we engaged the board with our plans to carry out and invest in audience insight with a not insignificant budget for quite a small lean charity. And um, the board were really supportive, though, and I think they were really forward thinking and they recognised the challenge we'd have in a few years if we didn't do this now. Once we had that support from the board and senior management colleagues, we went ahead and um, we engaged uh, an international market research agency, Hall & Partners, who worked with us to do core research with existing lapsed newer funders and prospects. They were absolutely, they were just brilliant. Um, they designed the research with both of our fundraising and our advocacy or strategic comms um, aims in mind. So we got loads of really rich qualitative data from those interviews about how our key audiences perceived us. And that was that was essential for informing how we engineered our verbal, visual, live brand experience. And some of that info was kind of validating what we already expected, but some of it was really quite surprising. Um, so then we found out, for example, that our contacts loved our people, but our brand didn't ignite quite the same excitement or emotional engagement. Um, but it was still useful to hear that and for the organisation to hear that. So we were all on the same page. And the parts that were surprising and useful were things like that our contacts really loved our small size, that our size mattered to them because it indicated the kind of relationship they felt they could have with us. And that was really valuable to them. So um our agency partners really helpfully presented that back to us internally, along with some additional research from a brilliant consultant called Kerry Rock. And all that together really cemented support for that within the organisation, because without that support, bringing everybody else with you, you're, you're onto a losing tack before you start. Um, so I guess my lessons from that are always start with your audience and definitely ensure that you engineer a supportive board and colleagues. That's really interesting. So the common theme kind of, as you say, two very different charities, but kind of the common theme I'm seeing is that it's not necessarily about inventing something new, but finding ways to express what is already there, even if, you know, in certain cases like Hope and Homes for Children, you had to do a bit more excavation to kind of to get there and to find it. Um, so, yeah, I wonder what some of the challenges were that you were finding with this process. Um, uh, Carol, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think... Um... Obviously, there's a lot of opinions and particularly kind of in an organisation and say where there have been lots of different versions of the truth for for some time. Those truths are the reality. And um, I kind of described the Ramblers as a bit like a Rubik's Cube. So everyone was looking at the same cube, but each person was mixing up all the different sides to be their version of the Rubik's Cube. And so trying to pull everyone back to saying, well, you know, we need to be really clear on which side of the cube we're looking at and what that message is, obviously is a, is a challenge because no one was wrong. Everyone had, everyone was right, but just their version and not one single version. So, um, yeah, definitely that was a challenge. But I think luckily overall, the, the kind of the core theme was that the, the desire for an, org- an organization and a brand that would be more relevant was, was there. Everyone kind of bought into, into that. So the, the momentum towards change was, was positive. But equally, some people want you to go further on change. So, um, we had a very kind of hearty discussion about the name of the, of the, the organization. So, the, the name Ramblers in its in its own language, you know, the word itself, and then what what it kind of conjures up in in people's minds, 
isn't always as positive. And, and there are some people who are disappointed that we didn't go further and change that name. Um, personally, um, you know, I feel really strongly that changing the name would have signaled the wrong, the wrong thing. We would have carried on potentially um, not addressing some of the kind of core underlying issues and not changing some of the behaviours and some of the messaging because people would have thought, well, we've changed the name, so that's, that's solved the problem. Um, so, yeah, definitely kind of getting, um, getting all of the opinions working in the same direction. We felt, um, you know, as a membership organisation, it's difficult because obviously, um, you know, people feel like they own that organisation and you need to kind of take things on board, but that we consulted more on the how of the implementation than the design, that, you know, you can't look at hundreds of people's um, opinions on design, you'll end up with something very bland and, and meaningless. So, um, yeah, we, we obviously consulted from a focus group perspective on the what we needed to do, um, but then, um, yeah, really worked um, more closely with our volunteers on how we're going to roll this out. We, we have 500 groups um, who are the Ramblers, you know, they are on the ground, uh, leading the walks, making, uh, doing the work, and therefore how they adopt um, the branding, what they need, the tools and the support is a big part of that um, rollout will take a long, long time for us. And that's interesting that, that actually at the core of that, you want people to have an emotional attachment to your brand, right? But then that means it makes it very hard to change or to alter because that emotional connection will be different and will, but will mean a lot. People yeah. will have that, those fierce opinions, which is both brilliant and I imagine challenging. And yeah, and some of those members have been members for 40 years, you know, and it's a really, really big part of their life. It's a lifestyle um, organisation. It's not, um, you know, it's not just something that kind of sits on the side and that you donate to it's, it's it's what you do day in and day out so they're very very invested in it yeah so, so in a sense you're messing with their own identity almost, yeah, right? yeah yeah it's yeah. a really good point yeah. yeah julia what were some of the challenges that you found so interesting some very similar ones and i'm totally stealing carol's rubik's cube analogy because that is exactly what was happening at open homes for children as well um of course the opinions and i guess we didn't sidestep that but we had um, perhaps a different approach in that we're not a membership organisation, but we do have um, we do have contacts and supporters who've been supporting us for thirty years um, ever since we started during the Balkans War. So um, yeah, some very strong opinions, and and we chose not to go back out to the audience. We did our audience opinion uh, audience insight up front and didn't then choose to take the creative back out for consultation um, because we felt that we could then achieve probably like a truer, um, more accurate adherence to what that insight had told us than if we then went back out and asked people and got loads of subjective opinions or oh, I, I like blue, I don't like blue, that kind of thing. Um, so we, we approached it slightly differently, which was great. We had other kinds of challenges, though, I would say, um, which will be familiar to every single charity out there, budget and resourcing priorities um, in developing this. There's never enough time to do all the day to day, yet also prioritise long term infrastructural work that is essential to prevent you falling behind. Large or small charity, the truth is there's never going to be enough resource. Virtually no one will fund that. And if they do, there's stiff competition for that money. And so you have to choose to prioritise doing that work and make that case around efficiency and effectiveness of the output internally, you know, depending on all kinds of things about your organisation, you know, your free reserves, your unrestricted income, that might be easier or harder to make that case. In our case, um, we were 
really lucky. I was new. The board and senior management team had already agreed to um, invest in me, at least in a small budget for my team to carry out the work. Um, so some of that was in place. But um, so, you know, the will, the recognition of, of rebranding as a priority piece of work was already there internally. But despite all that, actually like physically doing it, prioritising that work when your team still has to get out 10 pieces of DM, newsletters, social emails, events, story gathering, it's a challenge. You need to have that internal desire from the teams you support. Like their support is absolutely crucial because you need their understanding when it's their business as usual that gets bumped. They need to be persuaded of the long-term benefits. We did absolutely loads of stakeholder management and consultation with those teams. And I think the other thing, you need a lot of cool-headedness and you need to continually check back in with your objectives and remind people of why this is happening. Um, And even with all of that, we still started about three months later than I originally planned. Just um, really quickly about budget, as has happened every single year that I've worked in this sector, about four or five months into the year, budget gets pulled and it scuppers all of your plans. Um, so exactly the same thing happened, but at least I was prepared. Um, and we did have to be very quick to adapt and kind of change our plans there. But we were really, really lucky because we managed to get a large portion of this delivered pro bono by some really, um, really big names and some great partners. So actually in that respect the delay was kind of lucky because it allowed us to replan and pivot and so tell us a little bit more about how you got that pro bono support for the rebrand how did you bring those sort of big donors on board with you i mentioned before about a super supportive board and one of our board members who's a a marketing specialist with absolute years of commercial experience and rishira miotia she was instrumental in that it was all about working contacts she had um, brilliant contacts from the worship or worshipful company of marketers um, and put us in touch with the chair of Hall and Partners who did our um, market research, uh, Vanella Jackson. So we, I, I met her, I met Vanella and after an introduction and spoke to her about our cause and she could see the potential I'd seen in it, I think. I was still quite new and um, very passionate at that time. I mean, I'm still very passionate, but I was quite new and um, uh you know, a passionate advocate for um, the cause to somebody who's coming at it relatively cold as as I still was. And um, she could just see the potential in it. She could see the appeal was there. It's such a great cause, but it wasn't so well known. Um, And she wanted to help. That was the starting point. She was really generous with her time, really supportive of my mission personally within the organisation. And in, um, in one of our conversations, I mentioned that I believed we met the criteria for a challenger brand, um, as defined by, you know, Adam Morgan from Eating the Big Fish. So she stopped and said, well, should I put you in touch with Adam? And I was completely gobsmacked because, you know, um, that he, he's, he's not in my little black book. So, um, but she, that was the start of our collaboration with um, Eat Big Fish and, I had a fantastic call with Adam, his strategic director, Toby Brown, and there was a stroke of luck as well. We were very lucky um, in that Adam remembered his parents supporting Hope and Homes for Children. Um, And Eat Big Fish only take on one pro bono project per year, but happily, they really generously offered to make um, lots of Toby's time available. They ran two brand workshops for us with key stakeholders from the organisation. That was just transformational um, to work with an agency that's uh, supported so many 
large, really successful commercial organisations and smaller ones and really know, you know, the, the DNA of challenges inside out. So that set us up with the routes that we needed to go into the, the verbal brand development. Again, it was a bit of wraparound care here. So we um, uh, we worked with a paid consultant there. So um, Hall & Partners and Eat Big Fish were pro bono. We worked with a paid consultant um, to develop our brand language. So Rob Self Pearson of the Brand Language Studio. And actually, we've um, we've just featured in his latest book, The A to Z of Better Brand Language. So we're under V for voice. So take a read. Um, but between those two, they led us onto the work of another pro bono su- supporter, Nick Parker of That Explains Everything, who was a sort of knew both of those. And I guess... The, the sort of story here, alongside, in fact, some more pro bono support from um, an agency called Huddle, who were a contact of our our innovation and transformation director, Ben Knowles, who, well, it wasn't pro bono, that was low bono. So we got a, a good chunk off there, a good chunk off their usual fees. And um, I guess the story is, it was one contact after another. People were convinced of you know, how their pro bono support could really further our cause. And they really bought into it. And I guess just having me, whoever it was that spoke to them, having that belief, being able to convey that passion and the potential that this new brand had to really deliver on on our sort of, not just our fundraising, but our, our, our communications objectives, that we could actually persuade people that they would be... Um, you know, an end to orphanages in four countries in the next 10 years. Being able to to see that really persuaded them to, to get behind us and support us. I think what's really interesting that you've outlined there is that even though you had all this amazing pro bono work, there was still a significant investment being made in, in resources and time and, and, in, and financially. Um, and, and I think also that, you know, I think what you outlined there was that, you know, it is often a very worthwhile investment for charities to spend money on their brand. But you have to weigh up how you decide what is a reasonable amount of money to put into something like this. Carol, I wondered if you had any thoughts on that from sort of the, the work that you guys have been doing. Yeah, I mean, interesting, actually. Um kind of similar but different um, experience to, to Julia. I mean, we did pay our design agency a, a fee that um, I think, you know, is a, um, a fair fee, but uh, they're an agency, they're called Brand Opus, um, that I um, was aware of. I used to work in, in food marketing, um, they work on lots of big commercial brands. And similarly, you know, they really bought into the difference that they would be able to, to make. And therefore, we did not pay what they would have charged their commercial um, brands, but they are, you know, they're an independent agency who are owned by their employees and said, you know, we want to do this because we can see the difference we can make. And I think also we shouldn't forget that for for design agencies, research partners, or whatever, we become case studies of the work that they're able to do as well. And um, you know, that difference that they can make, well, hopefully they're going to make to our our uh, <laughs> our future successes. You know, they can they can feel proud of and they can showcase. But also, it's for their employees as well. Um, you know, it's different to redesigning a baked bean des- baked bean tin design, for example. It's a different challenge. But I think, yeah, on the on the cost um, kind of perspective, they can be quite big, scary numbers. You know, we've got the insight and then the design element and then the rollout kind of costs um, as well of redeveloping materials but I think I try to think of it kind of like you know this is it is an investment in the truest sense of something that you know if if done well and managed well should last you years and years and years um, 
And actually, when you look at that cost versus everything else that you're spending in the organisation to get your message out, um, I don't know about um, Julia's um, situation, but for us, it's actually a relatively small percentage. It's a big number in its own right. But, you know, on all of the other money that you spend recruiting supporters, even your, your PR resource, whatever that is, it, it's, it kind of, you know, balance, balances out. The other thing I, I, I feel like what I was having to address when I came into the Ramblers was a brand that had been developed 13 years ago, but hadn't been managed and curated. And so therefore there was a quite a, a big job to do. And it sounds like Julia, you had the, had the same. It's kind of like you're, you are reinventing the wheel as opposed to other brands that I've worked on for longer term where you kind of, you're just continually kind of evolving and massaging them and, and developing them in whatever way that might be to the to the changing organization to the changing world around you and so it's less of a big step and so yeah that's perhaps that's not necessarily about big amounts of spend but just kind of keeping the brand alive and I think something that you've both just alluded to there about the process of of rebranding being something that is constantly evolving and having to be agile and responsive rather than just going through this process and then saying right we're done we we completed the brand is absolutely true and I think Rebecca mentioned earlier in the podcast that you know we saw RNID rebrand to action on hearing loss and then almost a decade later it returned to being RNID again because people had said, actually, that name doesn't resonate with us, which I thought was particularly interesting, Carol, given what you said about the um, intent of some of your supporters to want to actually move away from that name. And and sometimes that can work and is a necessary thing, but it doesn't always. And I think you have to be constantly saying, well, you know, we're just going to to see how it plays out. There's a, a brand strategist that I've worked with in the past called David Taylor, um, the brand gym, and he has a concept that I really like and think is exactly what we're talking about here, which is that brands should have fresh consistency. <laughs> so, um, yes, being really clear about what the core of the brand is that, you know, absolutely is kind of locked in and is never going to change because it's what you stand for and, and who you are but continually updating and keeping it fresh and interesting, both from a what's changing outside, but exactly that. It's interesting that you've got new news and new new aspects, you know, whether that's the short term or the long term. And his analogy is um, James Bond 007. The James Bond is the same concept all of these years on 30, 40 years, whatever it is, but actually look at today's James Bond versus the one 25 years ago and the, the cars and the guns and the tools and everything are very different but it's still James Bond that we all recognize so yeah that's a guiding light for me yeah that's a great analogy and as we 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 mentioned at the beginning we have seen a number of charities announcing new brands and and rebrands um in in recent weeks I wonder do both of you think we're going to see more of these rebrands from charities in the aftermath of the pandemic. Julia, you kind of spoke to COVID-19 um, at the beginning of our conversation and how it had shifted people's perspectives to that more hyper-local position. Um, do you think we'll see more rebrands coming out of this? Absolutely certain of it. I mean, there must be so many organisations who are facing similar challenges to the ones I mentioned earlier. So, um, you know, noisier spaces, harder to get cut through, harder to achieve um engagement or attract and retain support or you know advocate for whatever it is that they they're advocating for and 
you know, we've seen a lot of smaller organisations facing significant financial challenges during and after the pandemic. You know, marketing is a leaky bucket. You have to keep filling up the people who support you, who give you money, your your customers in the commercial sense. Um, and, you know, that was always the case with more traditional sort of donor profiles. As they got older, you'd be concerned about how you were going to reach younger audiences, um, certainly in some of the organisations I've worked for. But now um, you've got the additional pressures of a changing external environment and um, those potential supporters' attention being diverted by, you know, the immediate crises that seem to be coming around quicker and quicker. So, you know, ultimately you have to adapt or or, or die. You have to um, face into some of these challenges. And I think a lot of a lot of organisations will see a rebrand as the first step to redefining that core truth that Carol was talking about and uh, changing the approach to communicating that core truth to potential supporters. So, yeah, absolutely. And Carol, did you have any thoughts on on the pandemic and and the impact that's going to have on rebrands? Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, we actually started our um, process uh, before uh, the pandemic, um, you know, the problem had been recognised, the, um, the research and even some of the design work um, was well underway. And then it's quite a strange kind of environment that we were living in. If you remember, virtually the only thing that anyone could do in that kind of first deep, dark uh, lockdown was go for a walk. I was going to say, we and all became a nation of outdoorsy people who liked exactly. walking. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly, exactly. Um, well, and um, yeah, so suddenly rap- walking was the thing that everyone was talking about. And I, there was some frustration kind of within our organisation of, well, why are they not just flocking to the Ramblers? Because they're walking now, you know. Well, A, we haven't rebranded yet. We've, we've mentally, internally gone on that journey, but other people haven't. So there's no reason why the barriers that existed before exist now. So so it has created the opportunity, I think, you know, for us that um, people are very interested in walking and have realised some of those benefits uh, for walking. So it was good timing from that perspective. But in terms of general, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that it will have prompted people to reconsider. And, you know, in, in some cases, I guess people will have had perhaps more time. Um, you know, Julia talked about time is always, um, always a, a challenge. And some people... Perhaps the core things they were doing just uh, weren't as as prevalent or as relevant uh, during the pandemic. And it's given time to maybe spend on on that important thinking. Brilliant. And yeah, this whole conversation, I think, has been studied with some really interesting sort of nuggets of advice. But just to sum up, um, what advice would you offer to other charities who are weighing up whether to rebrand or who are already in the process of rebranding? Um, Carol? So mine would be, and I think Julia mentioned this earlier, would be like, be really clear on what the problem is that you're solving and or trying to solve and keep that problem really clear and keep coming back to it because especially once you get to the design stage it's so easy to start to drift um you know because someone likes you know something that you're shown and and you can incrementally kind of move away from where you where you really need to be so yeah just being really really clear on this is what we're trying to do and will that element or whole rebrand process that you're going through actually help you address that because I guess the worst case scenario is we were saying you know it it, it isn't cheap and it takes time and if you're not going to come out of the end with something that you believe will address that problem then 
that's that's a real shame at <laughs> a stroke stroke uh, loss isn't it so i think yeah just being really really clear on the problem and and really cold-hearted on actually is this going to uh, going to make a difference because it is a, as we said earlier it's all about emotions isn't it and so you you have to kind of keep your own emotions in check as well and julia did you have any advice love it cold-hearted carol <laughs> now i totally second totally second what carol said absolutely i've got three i've been thinking about this so um the first is to work your networks to see who will help you free of charge or cheaply um, if you've got a personal recommendation, don't be afraid to approach them, um, especially with the big guys. That's unlikely to work cold, but um, it's it's worth a try. Um, with that, I think it's your job to be a passionate communicator with everyone you meet when you're leading a rebrand. Um, if you believe in what you're selling, they will too. The second one is to ensure that you bring everyone along in the organisation with you. If you can, you've got to be able to show how the investment that Carol described, which is exactly what it is, is going to reduce their effort and make their job easier um, and ideally achieve some organisational goals at the same time. But if you can do that, then you've got um, it, it's it's no longer an uphill battle. And the third one for me was to pick your timing. It's got to work for the organisation, especially if there's an activation to hang it off. So for us, that's our um, strategy launch that's happening uh, in a couple of weeks. If you can hang it off something that makes sense for your supporters, that makes the narrative easy to sell, choose that. Don't make life hard for yourself. So those are my my three biggies. Brilliant. Uh, Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a really interesting conversation. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. And we're joined by editorial assistant Alina Martin. Alina, what have you got for us? Yes, today I have a fundraising story and there have been many amazing stories about people rallying to support those affected by Putin's attacks on Ukraine. But this is a slightly different one. It's a fundraising story about a Scottish football club with a heartwarming personal connection to Ukraine. Okay, sounds interesting. Yeah, so in September 2005, the players of Hibernian Football Club were handed a UEFA Cup trip to Ukraine um, to the city of Dnipro. And when they got there, they were moved by the story of the local orphan children. So a handful of supporters organized a charitable collection for them. But as the fundraising went on, the initial idea of a one-off donation started to feel like it just wasn't enough and the charity Dnipro Kids was born and has been active ever since. Now that the children in the area are in more danger than ever, since Dnipro sadly is one of the cities under siege, the charity has partnered with the Hanlon Stevenson Foundation, which coincidentally was also founded by two Hibernian football club players, Paul Hanlon and Louis Stevenson, um, and they are organizing a prize draw. The prize consists of two tickets to the gala dinner organized by the foundation to mark a visit from club legend Frank Sauzet. The tickets include a VIP pass and a meet and greet with the man himself, as well as a bunch of signed memorabilia, which I have to admit in the beginning meant very little to me. But after a bit of research, I found out that he is actually a pretty big deal for football fans, particularly Scottish ones. 
and it shows. The initiative was launched on Just Giving on Friday and it has already raised more than £6,000. That's fantastic. That's really good in, in, yeah, just a few days. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And I think it was around 300 people who were donating so far. So it's pretty impressive. We will include links in the show notes so that if you are a Hibs fan, you can show your support as well. Um, But of course, if you're not, uh, there are so many charities that are raising money to help the people of Ukraine right now. Brilliant. And I think what's so great about that story is is the personal connection that, you know, these fans found out about this group of people that they wanted to support so previously just because they came into contact with them and are now really showing up to see what they can do to help now. As you say, they're in a really dire situation. So um, fingers crossed and hope that money is able to make a real difference. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, The Third Sector Podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. I'm Alina Martin. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guests, Julia Mazarodze and Carol Flint. And of course, our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. <laughs>